Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing careers, hear how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Uh, and we are approaching that magic 100th episode, Tarek. Magic 100. Who do we have? It's a surprise. For us. Even to us. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to worry about that right now because we have a great guest for the 94th episode. Yeah, really exciting guest today. We're chatting with Hugh Howie, who's a pretty well-known author. Uh, Wool was his um, uh, big breakout, breakout yeah. uh, book, which was uh, done as a, a really interesting kind of route to publication. Started off writing it bit by bit, putting it out chapter by chapter type thing, and then it just grew. The audience grew organically, and then he put it out on, the, in the, on, on Amazon self-pub system and the kindle and and it just it kind of exploded and it just kept on growing and growing it sounded like almost exponentially at some point it was just crazy figures it was pulling in yeah no that's right and and led to him actually turning down a a million dollars traditional publishing deal to keep can you imagine can you imagine turning down a million dollars to say (laughs) someone said you want a million dollars and you say no Okay, as yeah. a, as a, as a but but as as we hear from Hugh, he's he's that sort of uh, single-minded guy that he believes, you know, yeah. when when he's confident about something and believes in it, then he knows to back himself, even when it's scary at times. Totally, that's what he did totally. Before. And, and, yeah, he he originally had a self uh, a traditional publishing deal for his original books, and he actually bought the rights back. This was before Will. So that he could then self-publish because he felt that was the way to go. And as it turns out, of course, he was entirely correct. Yeah. And now yeah. he's uh, he does a bit of both self-publishing and traditional publishing. Will's yeah. being made into yeah. a TV show. So um, it's a really interesting chat talking about those sides of the industry, talking about the stigma of self-publishing, yep. which yep. Hugh is very adamant shouldn't be there and is trying to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just... Uh, a great uh, episode that I really enjoyed recording and and chatting with you about. So we'll get straight to it in a moment after our advert for a writer's notebook, which you can buy now on our website. Um, although by the time this episode goes out, it might just be, you might just still have time to get it before Christmas. If you're quick off the bat, if you if you have listened to this at twelve minute at twelve or one a.m. <laughs> yes. and you go straight to the website, then you might just get it for Christmas. Yeah. But even if you don't get it for Christmas, it's, it's a worth, great New Year getting. present. It is great present for any day of the year, <laughs> I, I think. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll get straight into it, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat. But for now, on with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So, how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. 
As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Uh, did you always want to be a writer? Uh, since I was about probably 10 or 12 years old, uh, I was addicted to reading at a very young age. And um, I, I guess I didn't understand that author was a career, but I did understand that writing was a, was a pursuit, was a passion. So I dreamed of, of writing my own stories that people would read and enjoy as much as I was reading and enjoying other people's books. But I was a bit older, probably in middle or high school, when I realized that being an author was a career. And even at that point, I didn't aspire to it because it felt inaccessible. Like uh, I, I wasn't sure that I would ever go to college or graduate college. I wasn't going to live in the right city or, or have that little writing cabin retreat up in the woods somewhere. Like I just had these really um, fantastical notions of what being an author was like, and I never fit into any of those categories that I've set for myself. So while I, while I dreamed of being a writer, and it was something that I think I was good at at a young age, I remember writing just stories and essays in high school and my teachers um, giving me feedback and encouragement saying, you know, this is something you should look into. You're quite good at this, but I uh, never thought I'd get to where I am right now. That's for sure. So, so when, when did you start, I suppose, trying to do it more seriously? When, when did you think, right, I'm going to try and write a short story that, and, and see if others will read it or, or whatever? Um, yeah, there's been different phases of that. The first time I was really young, like in middle school, when I set, set out trying to write a book on my dad's Apple IIe, and I wanted to write like a 300-page novel, basically, and I got uh, maybe... 30 pages into it and just lost steam and realized I wasn't good enough to be tackling this yet. Um, knowing what I went through back then, I'm really impressed when I meet really young writers today who are finishing novels. Mm -hmm. uh, it blows me away that kids that age um, can stick with it that long. And I, I admire them and look up to them so much because I know that at their age, I wasn't able to do it. Um, <clears throat> I remember having an idea for a story when I was in my early twenties and I was on a road trip and it was, I liked it so much. I actually broke out a notepad and was like writing on the steering wheel while I was driving, uh, <laughs> which I do not recommend to anyone listening to this to ever try that. Um, but I love the story so much that I thought, okay, this story is good enough that I have to write this. I have to finish it. I have to get it out the world. 
And I was so overcome with my passion for that story uh, that my failure to finish that really set me back in my belief that I would ever do this. Um, and probably because of that and a couple other attempts, I tried to write so many books over the years uh, from about 12 to 32. I guess I started a dozen or, or maybe even two dozen books. Um, but with the repeated failure, I finally realized I'm just never going to write a book. And that's a bucket list thing. Like I know I'm never going to learn the guitar. I'm never going to speak, um, you know, fluent uh, French, any of that stuff. And writing a book became part of that failed bucket list that I'd set for myself. Um, and because of that, I started uh, getting involved in books in other ways. Like I was working at bookstores. I was writing book reviews. I was going to book um, uh, conferences and like reporting on them and doing interviews with authors and just never let my failure as a writer uh, move me away from my passion for books. I was just realized I can serve that book community in other ways, but it, it was at a book conference that I, and doing interviews with authors and writing daily book reviews that several things happen. I developed a daily writing habit, which I've learned now. You don't wait for, for inspiration to, yeah strike you have to have this habit of sitting down and writing every day it's it's work it's not uh art um the other thing i learned is that authors are people just like me they come from all walks of life all ages that being 12 is not too young and being 40 is not too late to start um you don't have to have the right uh, you don't have to live in the right place all that stuff that i dispelled all that stuff and the third thing i learned was that you have to write terrible work and and edit it up to the polished product that we're used to seeing so I, I stopped comparing my rough drafts with the Pulitzer Prize winner that I just finished that was just mm -hmm. a silly a silly but unconscious or subconscious thing that I was doing all these years and and, and so all those things happened I had this idea for a story that I've been sitting on for about three or four years and I came back from one conference and just sat down and did the work and wrote my first book and the day that I finished that book, I'll never forget, was one of the most euphoric feelings of my life because it was this this, uh, this weight off my shoulders I've been living with and carried for decades. And once that was off, I realized, holy shit, not only can I do this, I think I'm actually good at it. I think I wrote a story that people would, would, would pay to read. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that day that I thought, okay, is a career possible? How would I go about this? But I think because of all my past failures, I was very cautious and very reserved about how I went forward. So I had the euphoria of finishing, but not the mania of like, I've written the next Harry Potter, where's all my money? Instead, it was like, okay, I can do this. I'm probably not going to be good at it. I've got to take a really long view of how I'm going to, you know, a lot of patience came from years of failure. Yeah. It's, it's interesting what you say there about, you know, that, that realizing that, writing i suppose a bad draft or something is is part of the process um because it's not really something that you're taught as you know when you're growing up you know if you're doing english or whatever you're not really taught you maybe to revise things a bit as you go but so many writers that we've spoken to say the same thing you know that often their first draft is something that is not great but they know that they'll then have to work on it and shape it into the the proper thing but it's a sort of it's something you have to discover yourself that that is a process like like you did I think 
Yeah, they, um, some people enjoy one more than the other, I think. I think mm-hmm. there are very few writers who equally enjoy writing and revising. Um, I know a lot who just love the writing process and hate fixing it or messing with it. Yeah, I'm, je- I'm jealous of those people. But I think they're probably jealous of me because I love revising. I love editing. Uh, I've edited uh, like six or seven anthologies now where I get to edit other people's writing. And that's probably where if the universe sifted people for their uh, talents and passions, where I would have ended up as an mm-hmm. editor, not a writer. Cause I, I, I know that I'm really, really good at that. I don't know that I'm really good at writing, but I've learned to trust my editing and revising so that I can write a rough draft and know that, okay, now my skills come into play and I can make this decent. Um, I, I've also, I, no one ever told me, um, like you're saying, people were not really told about the process, but no one told me how many passes you can expect to make on a, yeah. on a draft. Mm-hmm. I make a dozen before it's ready to go out. And the last couple are just looking for typos and cleaning up, you know, the, just making sentences sound a little bit better. But um, the first passes are making huge changes, introducing new characters, getting rid of other characters or combining them. Mm-hmm. Um uh, making huge plot changes, writing new chapters, just big pieces of surgery. And uh, uh, when when I was in school and teachers would say, like, look at the themes that the author, and this are the secondary meanings. And I was like, that's nonsense. There's no way someone's writing a story with a coherent plot, all these characters with believable dialogue and putting all these themes in. That's just not possible. But now that I see how often you go through it, like, you, you entertain yourself as a writer while you're yeah. doing it. And you're like, okay, I'm going to foreshadow this. Okay. This whole book is about um, the uh, importance of, uh, of friendship. So how many other ways can I make that theme evident through this? Uh, I'm also, you know, watching what's happening uh, overseas uh, in this foreign country with current events. And it's making me think about what it's like to be, uh, you know, uh, a refugee, you know, how can I tie that in? Mm-hmm. Like so many things that you're living through from your past through current events and your interests, you just keep weaving in more yeah. as a puzzle to entertain yourself than anything else. So I, it, it's really changed the way I read. Honestly, I've, I've loved that being a writer has made me appreciate other writers so much more. How do you know when you're, when you're finished, when you've weaved in enough, plots or themes or you've put enough chapters and how do you know when it's time to say right it is ready to go out now so i i hate everything that i write uh while i'm writing it for the first like five or six revisions as i'm going through it i just have all this doubt i'm like this is not as good as my previous stuff and i've lost the ability to write and all these things are going through my head while i'm while i'm soldiering through it and then I'll write, I'll, I'll read through it one time. And all of a sudden I realize like something clicks. I'm like, holy shit, is this actually good? And I'm making the little changes as I go through it and I'm reading it. And I, my, um, uh, my entire feeling about the work changes. It's, it just flips a switch. I, I wouldn't even bring this up except that it's happened on 20 different books now. It's not like, it's not this, it's, it's a, such a consistent feeling of going through this one revision and realizing, holy shit, it all works. It all clicks. It's, it's, it means what I want it to mean. There's no 
point here where I think a majority of readers are going to put the book down because they're bored. The characters feel real. Like it just all comes together and, and really starts to shine. And I think, okay, I still, I had one more book in me. That's as much as I'll ever tell myself. I had one more book in me. And after that, it's two more passes where I'm just, you know, looking for small mistakes. And then I send it off to my editor. But yeah, I think it's when I stop uh, berating myself for, for being a terrible writer is when I know the book is finally ready for other eyeballs. I mean, yeah, again, we've spoken to lots of people and they do, everyone I think has that sort of imposter syndrome type feeling of like, what, what's that? what I've written here, these 30,000 words or whatever are, are not great. Um, this story is going nowhere, but over the over time, it, it can definitely improve. I mean, as someone that, that does so many um, revisions and passes over something, are you someone that will, at the start of the process, write down a detailed plan or are you more I've got an idea and I'll see where it takes me knowing that you've got these passes to come I I have a a real good idea of the story but I don't have it uh, all written down usually when I, I spend a lot of time just living in the world and daydreaming about it before I start writing it so I feel like I know it really well the best the best way I've described this is um if I had to write the if I had to write a book on Star Wars or The Princess Bride, like a movie that I've seen at least a dozen times, I would do a pretty good job of capturing that whole film, even though I've memorized, you know, I haven't deliberately memorized any of the lines. I've never written down any of the plot, but it's in my head so clearly that I could, uh, I would do a, as good a job as the original, but I could tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time I sit down and write a book, I feel like I've watched it uh, a dozen times in my mind. Um, even because by the time I'm revising and editing a book, I've had plenty of time to live in, in the next world. You know, it's not like I'm just living in one book. I'm daydreaming yeah. about several worlds at the same time. So I know them pretty well before I get started. I do usually have like two documents on my laptop dealing with the book. One is the name of the book. It might be Across the Sand. And the other documents, Across the Sand Notes. And I'll keep both open. And anytime I think of stuff that I need to add um, to the book, I just jot it down in that notes document. Mm -hmm. And I I start that document even before I start writing. So I might just come up with names and ages. Um, You know, proper nouns are a tough one for me. I don't want to be in the middle of writing and and get stuck. Okay, what's a good name for this person? Now I'm out of the flow. So I try to have as many names set up as possible ahead of time. I'll put three X's in a row for anything that I want to come back and rename later just to keep the flow going. Um, stuff like that. But yeah, I would say that for me, I, I think there's too much distinction between plotters and pantsers. Cause I think we do so much of both, no matter what you're, if you write a, if you write an outline, you're writing it by the seat of your pants, you're just making it up as you go. So it's using some of that um, ex nihilo imagination that pantsers use. And if you're a pure pantser, um, some of your stories plotted out by um, knowing how stories are supposed to go. Um, you have absorbed so many stories over your lifetime and you know the hero's journey and you know what readers expect and you don't deviate from that too much. You know, you yeah. introduce your big character, the good guy's going to stay the good guy. Like if you started listing all the things that you're, um, writing is bound by, you'll realize that you're, 
it's much more rigid than you think. You don't have ultimate freedom. Yeah. I wanted to ask about your your early books before before Wool, which we'll come on to, because Wool is kind of what, for a lot of people, you're best known for. It was, I suppose, your breakout book, but it was actually your seventh novel. Um, and you, I know you'd written the Molly Flight books, uh, a bunch of novellas and stuff. And and in, in that time before before Wool, um, you know, did you, did you have an agent at that point? Were you putting up books yourself? Was it self-pubbed? What, what was your process? Or how did you how did you get those books out there in, into the wild? Yeah, I had a, I've had a very zigzag journey through this. I um, I always assumed I would self-publish. Uh, so even as I was writing that first book, my I'd started a blog and I was kind of blogging about writing, um, and blogging from the perspective of my character, just doing like weird stuff just to try to get some attention. Um, you know, my dream was to sell like a thousand copies of that first book. Working in bookstores, I knew that that was like an ambitious goal, not a not a conservative goal. It was like, how do you once you exhaust your friends and family and the people who actually support you are only a couple of dozen, um, selling to a hundred strangers is difficult. Selling to a thousand is really, really difficult. So I think it helped. I think I was really lucky with my time in the book industry that I knew that setting a, a an ambitious goal meant as low as a number as 1000. Yeah. Um, some people be like, you know, they think selling a million books is feasible. It's almost impossible. Um, so, uh, I was, all, I was just going to publish it on my blog and just let people read it for free to try to get readers for the second book, perhaps. But the first few people who started reading it said, man, this is good enough. Uh, you should try to get it published. So I sent that draft around. I did not have an agent. Um, there, and there are very few publishers who will take a submission, um, without an agent, but I sent it to a couple of, um, small presses and, both of them asked for full read and one of them um, made the offer before the other. And so I just went with them. Uh, I thought this was an infinite step up from what I'd planned to do, which is put it on my blog for free. Someone was going to pay me in advance. They were going to do all the editing, handle the cover art, just all the production costs. So it was like a traditional book deal, but for a very small amount of money. So this was, um, this was like very quickly beyond what I thought would happen for me. Um, but working with them, what I realized is, is small presses were just using tools that were available to self-published authors. They just had um, a little more uh, experience and access to editors and cover artists and things like that, that it would take me a while to figure out the source. But doing that first book, I, I learned from them that I can do everything they were doing without giving them so much of the cut of the, um, the cost of the book. And so when I started writing the sequel and realized I was going to actually be able to, to write a couple of books a year and they were going to be very slow to publish them, I asked if I could buy the rights back and just go on my own. And I think that was a huge turning point in my life, and my career. Um, I took a lot of courage. I remember being terrified of that decision. Mm-hmm. And everyone told me I was making a mistake. Um, uh, I had so many writers that I respected and people in forums telling me that it'd be the end of my career. I'll never make it as a writer if I self-published because it would be a stigma that would hang mm-hmm. over me for the rest of my life. And I think all those people were giving me s- sound advice from where they were in their careers and what they had learned in the past, but they weren't reading the landscape and um, they were all dead wrong. And, you know, going against professional advice and going your own way is like, really, really difficult when you're a novice. But uh, 
I bought the rights back to that book and just started self-publishing. And I never cared about publishers from that point forward. I didn't care about agents. I didn't care about publishers. I just loved the freedom. I, that's when I became a pure artist, really. I know that sounds real douchey, but I never, I no longer cared about the income as much as I cared about like paginating the books. I learned how to use InDesign and I would just lovingly craft every page of every book so that I knew where every hyphen was and where every, there were no widows and orphans. I learned so much about um, book layout. And, and this is just another layer of my love of books, you know, just, just piled onto my time as a reader, as a bookseller, as a critic, as a uh, author interviewer, as a book conference reporter, like here I was actually creating the books from scratch, cover art, pagination, ISBN number, everything. And I fell in love with that process. And uh, that carried me through till Wool became a, a New York Times bestseller. And at that point, um, you know, it served me those years not thinking about agents and publishers because I didn't need them. I didn't need them until they were coming to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would have wasted my time trying to chase something down that, that was useless to me at the point, at that point. And by the time I really needed a, an agent, I could choose whichever one I wanted. And I wasn't stuck with the agent that said yes to my thousand queries. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm very lucky. You're, you're a pro. <laughs> I mean, I, I suppose there's an element of the timing. The time that you chose to do that was obviously uh, the time that self-publishing was becoming more mainstream. But also I think what you're saying there is that there's a lot more to self-publishing than some people might think. Some people might think, oh, I've written, I've written my book. I can click publish and it's now on Amazon and there it is. I mean, there's, there's clearly a pro, a, an important process before you get to pressing that button. There can be, um, you know, some people write in a word document and Amazon has like a, uh, a uh, title or like a cover page generator that does a very basic cover art um, and they'll format the book for you that those tools have gotten much better than when I was first starting. But um, I, to, for me, it'd be like being a painter, not knowing how to, how to build a frame and stretch a canvas and mm-hmm. just sew it. Um, like I have to go buy a canvas that's the you know one of the stock sizes at at the craft store and not knowing you know how to care for brushes but like i'm going to paint and then throw them away or have someone else care for them like i just can't imagine being a writer and not um wanting to know about the whole process and knowing about the industry i meet writers all the time and they're like they don't they don't know what's, what's in a book contract and they don't know what terms they don't know what like deep discounting is and there's like a, a huge vocabulary for agents and for booksellers and for publishers. And I think authors all need to know that vocabulary. Uh, there should be a glossary out there, you know, for us to, to understand these things and to understand the business. And I get some people saying like, I just want to write. I don't want to know anything about the business. There's nothing wrong with that. You can be a writer your whole life like that, but I don't understand how anybody can be an author with, with, um, without wanting to understand the business that they're trying to enter. So as soon as you realize this is going to be a profession, then start learning everything you can about the industry. Um, and that means go, if you've got to work a day job while you're trying to be a writer, work a day job in a publishing house or with a bookstore or um, somehow adjacent to the industry you're trying to crack into. And, uh, you know, that's um, what other artists do is they're trying to make it in, in these careers like musicians and, 
and actors, they, they try to align themselves with the fields mm-hmm. that they're trying to break into. And did you, uh, when, when you decided to go down that self-publishing route, you know, I suppose the, the, the worry for people that, that do that is how will anyone find my book? Why will, why will they see my book? I mean, did you do any work on that front, building up email lists or anything like that? Yeah, I, I was never the best about with email lists. Uh, a lot of other authors did a much better job than I did at that. Um, I, I did everything I could as long as it wasn't taking away time from writing. So I would I would set up uh, a little table at craft uh, shops and outside of bookstores, anybody or coffee shops, anyone who would who would say yeah. And that took some learning, like how to go up to the owner of a small. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clothing store or coffee shop and say, Hey, I'm a, a local writer just trying to make it in a tough business and uh, written this book. And it's got, you know, these endorsements and these great reviews. And uh, maybe I can draw some customers in by having a little table outside. I'm not going to bother anybody or push, you know, I'm just going to set my little thing up and I'll be writing my next book on the side and try to sell a couple of books, but uh, just trying to you know make it as an artist in the community. And Everyone has a different kind of pitch like that, but, um, you know, you, you don't make a lot of sales that way, but my, my goal was to write, I, I'd never wanted to be a bookseller of my own books. And that meant that I, I, I couldn't write a bad book and then try not to go out there and push it on people over and over again. My idea was if I write a book, it's got to be so good that the person who reads it will want to tell two other people about it. That's the only way you're going to get growth, you know? So I believe that I was writing those books that someone would say, not everyone, but there'd be someone out there who would say to two other friends, like, Hey, you should read this. And then it's just about selling that first thousand copies. And that is a hustle. That's just like, uh, and and it's a hustle without being uh, off putting about it. Like you can't push your book on people. You just have to let people know about it and try to entice them to, Mm -hmm. to pick it up. And uh, it's hard. Like I'm, um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like if you're the people who make it in this industry, either get super lucky or they get a little lucky with work with a lot of hard work. Like those are the only ways to, to do it. And getting that first uh, thousand sales. I mean, I was, I was doing like so many YouTube videos just to, and sharing them on Facebook and Twitter and everywhere I could and relying on friends and family to like hit retweet and to share what I was doing to other people and giving it, being patient years and years of writing two or three books a year and just hoping you would accumulate. And the, and the quality of the work has to keep people, you know, if you write one bad book, you can turn off your entire fan base. Yeah. 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 So then, so then when, when Wool came along, um, you know, that was one of these few books that come to mind where, I think the Martian by Andy Weir is another one where, you know, someone's written a story and they've put it out there um, in little chunks and it's just, it's transcended somehow into the mainstream and it's become this big thing and it's been picked up by publishers and film rights been bought, you know, and it's really exploded in a way that so many books, especially written in that kind of, kind of piecemeal way don't. And, and, um, and what's your thoughts on, 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 on how Wool became such a big hit? It's a great, great question. Um, I think there's something to the serialized <clears throat> nature of its release that really helped me. 
the reason I think that isn't just kind of post hoc, well, that one was successful and it was serialized. Um, I've read about, I don't know, 20 novels. Three of them I've serialized in five chunks. Um, Wool, uh, Sand, and Beacon 23. And those are by far the, the three biggest sellers I have out of the 20 books. So there's something about <clears throat> my writing style in a serialized fashion or the publishing method that's really helped those books. Um, so I like the way your question's framed, which is the right way to frame it, is how did this work in spite of it being such a weird publican, publish, publication method? Um, somehow that method is part of the success recipe. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but um, one thing I think about a lot is that I grew up watching a lot of TV and reading a lot of comic books. And I think I really do a good job of writing stories that have small narrative arcs within a large narrative arc. And each of the small arcs is uh, rewarding and makes you want to read the next one. And they all build towards something um, more, more substantial. And uh, it, it, it really suits my writing style. You can change the voice. You can change the protagonists and characters as you go, instead of trying to create one mammoth story with the same characters that holds your interest through that boring middle bit that a lot of books suffer from. So writing shorter works um, freed up my uh, creativity and my writing style in a way that writing long books uh, has not. And I've actually had to learn from that how to write longer books in a way that the chapters are self-sustaining rather than just filler. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I would say that I'll, I wrote Wool at a time where it didn't have a lot of competition, but I also priced it, you know, at 99 cents. It was just like an impulse buy. And when people were, were suggesting other people to read it, they would say, and I've, I've heard this from so many readers, as I've tried to puzzle out, Tariq, what you're asking um, over the years, like, why did this work? I've had so many readers say that they would tell friends, like, dude, you have to read this. It's only a dollar, and it'll, you can read it on your lunch break. Mm-hmm. It's only 50 pages. And I think, like, a hundred times more people clicked than would have if someone said, hey, I've just read this thousand-page fantasy novel. It's amazing. It's only 15 bucks. Go get a copy. Like it's a completely different ask from readers. And because of that, uh, it was, it was something that I was hoping to write a story that you would tell two people about. Wool was one that I know from talking to readers that they would tell 10 people about. And those 10 people would tell 10 people. And I watched because I did no marketing or promotion of the story. I published it for 99 cents and went back to writing my next novel, but I watched the sales and it was exponential. And it was, it was just like watching uh, the pandemic spread, basically. Like um, you had that much of an RO, you know, that much of an infection rate. And length and price had a, had a lot to do with that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. As you say, it's much harder to sell to say, is this great 900-page book? <laughs> People are going to pick that up as, as, as easily. And of course, it, it did have such a success that, traditional publishers came knocking um, and I think I'm right in saying that you turned down a large sum to keep the e-book rights for yourself. Is, is that right? 
Yeah. It, I didn't set out to like say no to a million dollars for sure at, at the beginning. Like we, <laughs> uh, it, what well, it was interesting was like we had three different rounds of offers come in. And at this point I had an agent, uh, Kristen Nelson, who was just the, amazing because she was willing to say no to me as well. Most agents are just always pushing to, to accept a deal. They get their cut and move on. Mm-hmm. But uh, every time we got an offer, they were offering what I would have accepted like three months earlier, but not what I would take at that point. So they, they were seeing the sales like after the sales reports would come, would come out yeah. and I was seeing the sales in real time. So I knew what the earning potential was. And so we got, you know, authors in the $50,000 range. And I was like, whoa, that's like, that's what I'll probably make next month. Um, but boy, I would have jumped on that like three months ago when I didn't know if this would last a week before this would peter out. And then they were making six figure offers. Uh, and at that point I was like, I'm going to make that next month. And that, I would have taken that offer when, when, when I turned down 50,000, because I don't know if it's going to sell for two months, you know, books fall off a cliff after a while. Mm-hmm. And, and that kept going on until the, the offers went up into the million dollar range. And, uh, and we, we turned that down as well because we realized that, that they were just too slow to understand the potential of this, of the, the digital rights of this story. So uh, that was the best, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my writing career was turning, turning down the biggest publisher in the world for one of the biggest deals uh, that, that we would ever see. Um, because seven years later, we did an even bigger deal for the same book because we, by the time we did a print only deal with Simon and Schuster and kept making money on the ebook and audiobook and foreign rights and all that stuff. Um, that, that deal was only for, for seven years. We got the rights back and did another seven figure deal seven years later. So, um, and that deal is also time limited. So we're going to get the rights back again. And I think that's, you'll never sign a deal with anybody who believes in your work as much as you do. And that's something that I think we lose sight of when we, when we line ourselves with publishers is that 10 years from now, I'm still going to believe in that book and they're over it. They're signing a new book and they believe in this new book and they have to justify what they paid for that new book. So they're not going to market your book because your book is now a competitor to this new one. They, so you're the only one who's going to be a champion for your work for your whole lifetime. Your publisher will never be as big of a champion as you think. And they definitely won't sustain it. And even your agent, my agent is amazing, but I also know she's got a new client she signed this year and she needs that client to be a New York Times bestseller. And she needs to like put all of her energy into that new client. So I don't, I don't pester her. I don't ask her for stuff. I like, I, I respect that she has to divide her attention across many books and many authors. Uh, I will never ha- have that um, problem. You know, I will have, I'll only be one author and I'll only have my book. So uh, I think people need to remember, uh, authors need to remember when they get partners in this journey that there's part, these partners have very different levels of commitment. And, and so don't fool yourself into thinking like, this is going to be my champion forever. It just doesn't happen that way. You made a lot of, a lot of bold moves, which a lot of authors would be too scared to have made. I think you know things like turning down a million pounds or or buying back the rights to your book and saying I would do this myself for better. You know that's there's a lot of 
those are a lot of steps which I can see a lot of people fear enough saying I don't want to take that chance and stuff but you know taking taking risks is that something which you think is important to do to if you don't if you don't make those take those chances some of them might, might not go anywhere but if you don't then you're never really going to achieve the potential that you could make otherwise yeah you know I hate to lead any author astray because there are so many other success stories where someone signed with a publisher and that publisher believed in that they had the right uh, editor at the publishing house and they really believed in this author and stuck with them through like three or four books until their career took off. So those stories happen. And those authors might not have what it takes to learn the business and self-publish and keep their interest up. So, you know, I, I share my journey, but it's definitely not a prescription for other people's because everyone's got to realize, okay, I've found myself a champion for me in this spot and I need to, to follow that. Um, I don't think it was I, one advantage I had. Um, and this is something that I, that I, when I give writing advice, I always encourage writers to think about, especially when I talk to young writers for a lot of older writers, it's usually too late to give this advice, but managing your, your debt and your cost of living is critical for making it as a writer, any kind of artist, really. Um, I lived in the smallest house I could find in any community that I lived in. I, um, put a lot of sweat equity in my homes and I worked really hard in my other careers and saved up every penny. I didn't spend it frivolously on other stuff. And it was all towards a goal of being debt-free. Um, I wanted to like not have any student loans. I wanted to pay off my, my home. Um, I wanted to be able to live on, you know, a very minimal uh, income. And because of that, the money didn't matter to me. Like I, uh, $50,000 wouldn't have changed my life that much. Um, that's not true for most people. They might have, you know, medical bills or kids and college education to think about, and they can't, you can't risk saying that $50,000. So um, I, I was very lucky that as, at a really young age, I, I decided I hate being in debt in any, any way to anybody. And that put me in a good position in my thirties to, to not worry about the finances it, I mean, I, I cared about the finances, but it gave me the patience to think long-term and realize that my uh, long-term earning potential were, was much better than this short-term windfall. It's the difference when you win a lottery, you can choose, have a huge, big upfront payment that you can pay a lot of taxes on, and it's going to probably disappear quickly, or you can get this annuity that pays you for a long time. And early on, I realized that I could choose that annuity and make more over the long term than these one-time payments. And how how do you think the the self-publishing world has changed since you entered it? Because we were sort of speaking about this just before we started recording. That obviously there's different methods of getting money. There's now Kindle Unlimited and things like that. But ha, has it become more difficult to have the sort of success that that, that you had? That's a great question. Um, has it become more difficult? I, I think there's probably more people um, trying to do the same thing now because the, when, when I got into this, one of my goals was to never have writers feel the same fear and stigma that I felt when I chose self-publishing. So a lot of, self, a lot of successful self-published authors write, uh, publish, make money, repeat. They don't feel the need to be um, advocates for how they write. And I respect that. I'm, I'm actually envious of those people because 
um, I put a target on my back and spent a lot of time and, and money and resources and energy um, in pursuit of a, uh, a goal, which is basically to make sure that no one ever felt the things that I felt when I was kind of bullied by other writers and bullied by publishers and told negative things by agents and, and whatnot. Um, I wanted the world uh, to be a lot more uh, free of gatekeepers and, and even stigma is a gatekeeper. It's an invisible gatekeeper, but it's uh, the shame of walking across a line without paying some due. And I think we're there now. I think now there's so much example. It probably would have happened without my advocacy. I don't know that it was necessary. I think there's just enough living examples that if people say I'm self-publishing, they're like, oh, good for you. Um, there's still, there'll always be some, some stigma out there, but um, is it more difficult now? Yeah, because I think back then we had a lot more people who were getting frustrated with trying to get an agent or land a publishing deal. And we were never seeing those books on the marketplace. And to me, that's a tragedy. Um, now that those books are on the marketplace, does that make it harder to be successful as a writer? Yeah, but only because back then we were only asking how hard is it to be successful as a writer among people who are published. In reality, it was still very, very difficult because most people never got an agent. So, you know, the same number of books are probably being written, but very few are making it to the marketplace. So I think it's probably equally difficult now, but it seems harder because we see more books out there rather than manuscripts and drawers. Yeah. I think, I think there were like, there was hidden competition before and now it's all visible competition. Um, I will say it's, it's just as easy to make it as a writer uh, these days. All you have to do is live, breathe, eat, sleep, writing, and give yourself a 10 year window of writing two or three books a year for 10 years. So can you write 20 or 30 books and be patient for a decade until you not only master your craft and, and become the best writer possible, but also get that many lottery tickets out there and the chance yeah. that one of them becomes successful. And can you give up all other pursuits on the side so that you spend your free time, um, you know, engaging in the writing community, engaging in the reading community, making yourself known, uh, coming up with odd promotional opportunities. Um, there were so many beautiful Saturdays that I sat outside of a coffee shop trying to sell my books and all my friends were off doing fun things with mm-hmm. beautiful, it'd be, you know, the weather's, weather's beautiful and you're sitting there selling 10 books in a whole day. Like, can you do that? Yeah. Because most people can't, but for me, it was something that I've dreamed of so long and wanted so badly that I was able to. So if you're listening to this and you have that level of dedication and love of this, all you've ever wanted to do, you, you've got a really good shot because most of the people you go up against do not have that level of dedication. They have a different level that should be celebrated. The ability to write a book and, and the, um, just the, the joy and the difficulty of finishing one novel in your life is something that we should applaud every single person that we meet who's written a book. Like, good on you, because I know for 20 years I couldn't do it. But the people who can do it consistently and make it their passion for a long period of time, almost all of those people make a, a some sort of living as a writer. Uh, and that's encouraging to me. Yeah. And you are something of a, um, I don't know what the right phrase is here, leader or teacher, but you obviously really enjoy helping others um, 
to, to, to come up and, and as you say, to get past those gates that, that, that block so, so, so many. And, and you took part in the Kindle world, for instance, which I know allowed other authors to kind of play in your sandbox a bit and write stories set in your, in your, your universe. Is that, is that helping other people onto the, onto the world or giving them a step up? Is that something that's quite important to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and not, not because, well, a couple of things. I had a lot of people help me out along the way. As I said, I was doing a lot of um, author interviews, just like we're doing right now. I've been on the other side of this so many times. And I, the things that I heard authors say, which they were saying to the bigger audience, I was part of that audience. And I, I got a lot of encouragement and, and really good advice and self-confidence from those conversations. Um, and they were all just giving up their time, you know, uh, I mean, I, I don't think in the back of their mind because of this, the very small size of what I was offering as my platform, none of them came on thinking I'm going to sell a lot of books by being on the show. And I come on to shows and do interviews all the time and book sales are a zero part of the reason I come mm-hmm. on. I'm not thinking about it at all. Um, I'm thinking two things. One is selfish. I love talking about books in the writing industry. Like, Tariq, as soon as you told me you've written a book, like the first thing I did is get on Amazon, check it out, put it in my Kindle Unlimited queue. I'm going to go read it next. Like I'm excited to be around other people who are writing. I don't see us in a hierarchical uh, hierarchy. I think we're all in this together. So part of it is that. Uh, the other part is uh, not just paying back the writers who, who helped me along the way, but um, we give each other a boost. You know, as if I'm giving someone advice, they're going to say something back to me that I never heard of that's going to help me out. Uh, I was uh, talking with an author once and um, giving them some advice on uh, print-on-demand books, and they had been figuring out audiobooks way back. This was 10 years ago, before audiobooks became this huge phenomenon. And they said, you need to make an audiobook version of everything. I've seen the same like growth rate that I saw with my eBooks, And... Um, uh, it was uh, Annie Belay, an amazing science fiction author who's had this great career since. But um, I, I took her advice and went off and, and started making audiobooks, something I was completely ignoring. And it became a huge revenue stream for me in a way of reaching readers I wouldn't have any other way. So I think she, we went into this conversation thinking that the flow of information was going to go one way and it just never works that way. It's we learn from each other. So, um, yeah, there's there's so much that I get out of it that it's just not a question for me about trying to share information. But like I said earlier, the number one reason I do it is just to um, help anyone else who is like me, who is just, you know, uh, floundering out there trying to figure out, okay, I, I, I want to write a book. I've written a book. What do I do now? There was such a positive information. And the information that was out there was terrible information, terrible advice. So I'm not saying my way is better, but here's a way that's viable. And at least have this as a second uh, option and um, way which one seems more logical, which one makes more sense to you and know that either that both are equally uh, viable and that there should be no shame in making either decision. Do you think the... Uh, like you say, the, the, the stigma of self-publishing has fallen away a bit, but there's definitely still a bit of it around. Um, you know, I hear it from people I've spoken to and stuff. Do you, do you think the, 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 that difference will eventually 
disappear now that people are much more used to reading ebooks anyway, whether it's from a traditional publisher or self-published? Do you think that will continue? The, the sort of the, the streams will connect eventually, so that there isn't there really isn't a difference as far as anyone is concerned. Yeah, that, that'd be the goal, but I don't think it can ever disappear completely because, um, like cultural biases are, are like a summation of individual biases. And even if we got rid of it, you know, all the biases from everyone except for one person, then it still exists. You know, mm-hmm. there'll be that one person out there who says, who says self-publishing sucks. Yeah. So you can never get rid of it. You'll have people out there who say traditional publishing sucks. Um, I think what you hope is that, you know, the Brownian motion of this uh, cultural attitude equals out. And what you have is like the person in the middle just kind of being jiggled every equally from all directions so that whatever path makes sense for them, they feel no resistance in taking that yeah. path. Um, I, I, I hope that traditional publishers, you know, that we, we make this career more viable for authors. Like uh, it's crazy to me that like health insurance and like a regular, some kind of job security isn't involved. It's just, very contractual thing. Like I will pay you for this one book, but there's no guarantee that you'll ever work again. And um, I think terms of a lot of contracts can be better. I think publishers could save money in a lot of ways and, and use those savings to help out authors instead of, um, you know, their real estate empires and other things. Um, So there's stuff I'd like to see improve on both paths. What I will say is it's, it gets really clear when you think, the only two people who are important here are the readers and the writers, like everyone else is superfluous. So create added value or get out of the way, but don't be here to take advantage of readers and, and, and don't be here to take advantage of writers, um, but facilitate, you know, getting the best books in the hands of the most avid readers possible. And if you simplify down to that, I think a lot of the, you can see who's like being a bad actor of this industry and who's being a good actor. You've you've talked about again. I read online in an interview that you gave about how when when someone goes to see a film, you don't, they don't talk about whether it's an IMAX movie or a three D movie. They tend to just talk about having seen a film. And you know, looking forward at the future of the publishing world, um, you know, places like Barnes and Noble have kind of given up on the nook, and Apple and Google sell eBooks, but it doesn't seem to be a priority for them. You know, is there? Is it a, what does the future hold in your view? You know, are are we we going to see, is this basically Amazon having a bit of a stranglehold on the ebook market? Is it going to be another player coming in? Is it going to be another change in the format of how people consume media and books? Is it, or is this just going to be a kind of equilibrium of print and ebooks in in the future? That's a great question. I think um, we won't see much new development in the, uh, consumption and dissemination of books. Um, I think when it comes to text, which is what writers do, it's a very low cost way of, of creating entertainment. If you think about it, we're just like just a keyboard, you know, just putting 26 letters in different combinations. Um, the ways of distributing that uh, are looking at the words or hearing the words. That's just how communication works. So audiobooks. Uh, which have been around for a long time. You know, they come, used to come on like cassette tapes. Um, but audiobooks just go back to radio, go back to um, fireside storytelling. Like this is how stories were originally. It's not like this new invention to hear a story. 
stories started that way and writing them down and reading them came much later. Matter of fact, the first stories would have been written down and you'd have to have a specialized person who would read them to everyone else because not everyone could read. So the written book is actually the last of these to come along. And I think it closes the circle on how we can write down a story and have it told. Um, can we write for video games and VR and uh, all these things that require added media? Sure, but that added media is super expensive. It's the most expensive part of the creation of a, of a multimedia story. The, the, the text is still the cheap part. So the, there's more career opportunities for writers in other genres, writing for video games, writing for TV, for film, but those aren't books. That's just writing for other types of mediums. For books, what we see is what we're going to have. Um, as far as other players, I think it's it's frustrating for me that to watch um, Amazon get denigrated all the time for like selling other stuff and um, for you know being the nine hundred pound gorilla in the book world. There, you mentioned a lot of other players who have not made books a priority at all. Like even Barnes and Noble hasn't made eBooks a priority, which is terrible for, for writers and for readers. Um, I would love, I worked for Barnes and Noble through college. I love, I've spent so much money and so many hours in Barnes and Nobles. I love them to death. I wish they would have cared more about writers, but the relationship is with publishers. They just do not give a shit about writers. Uh, and I can say that as someone who worked there, like that was not our focus. Our focus was on how to keep publishers happy and keep making merchandising dollars through them uh, and not have them, you know, uh, change our terms of our deals. Like we just obsessed about publishers and did not care about writers as much as we should have. So of all these different companies, Amazon's the one that still they're, they started as a bookseller and they have not lost that DNA. I've gotten to know a lot of people at Amazon over the years and the way they think about books and writers is such a breath of fresh air compared to every other like, you know, I, I tried working with Apple and the people in their little division cared a lot about writers that wouldn't have worked there otherwise, but they couldn't get anyone at Apple to listen to them to, for anything else because the, the larger culture did not share their enthusiasm. With Amazon, most of their money comes from like AWS, these like computer services, uh, through shipping, through selling products. But when their book people go to the, the very top guys and say, here's a project that we're passionate about, they actually have their ear. And that's because of how that company got started. It was founded on books. And just, uh, I've never stopped seeing that passion within the company and, and that knowledge of where they came from. And so, yeah, they are going to continue to be the biggest player in books until other people start to care about books as much as they do. Or to start caring about readers and writers as much as they do. Like no one's ever try to drive the price down for readers and make books accessible to people all over the world in any language, in any remote part of the, the world, the way they did. Like everyone else was like, just go to your local bookstore. And some people didn't have that opportunity. They didn't have that option. So um, I, I would love to see more competition in the space because it's only going to come when we have more companies who are solely devoted to the needs and, and services of writers and readers which is what i'm passionate about and um talking about uh, sort of other mediums i think i'm right in saying that will is will being turned into an apple show uh, at, at the moment is, is that happening just now 
Yeah, it's filming. Uh, you guys are in London, right? Edinburgh. Yeah. Oh, you're in Edinburgh. So yeah, just uh, just north of London. So uh, not too far from you guys. Um, it's been filming for a few months, and uh, yeah, just watching the dailies every day, like the stuff they're capturing. It's just unbelievable. It's ridiculous. So, so they send the stuff to actually watch. You you're actually quite involved in it, then, are you? Yeah, they. I mean, I think they're. I don't know if they're humoring me or or. Like this is my first time going through the process of seeing something get made, but you know, I'm an executive producer on it, which I think gives me a little bit of uh, leeway. I don't call in many favors or ask for much. I just really want to stay out of the way, but um, I was part of the writing room to set up the story and block out the episodes. Um, I've given a lot of feedback on the scripts. They've made a lot of changes based on the feedback. Um, I like I talked about revising earlier I can always see where, where a story can be better. Um, and so I, I just want to spend like so much time going through and adding those layers of meaning and uh, making everything absolutely perfect. But there's a lot of super smart, creative people involved to um, make sure the sets are great, the costumes and uh, hair and makeup. It's just, it's such a, it's a massive team of people pouring all their energy into one, one vision, which is really impressive to watch. That's cool. And it must be, must be quite cool to see your work being turned into scripts because it's, you know, yeah, it's the same story and the same setting and characters, but it's being told in this whole new medium. So what works for a book, you know, might not work and vice versa and having to rejig scenes or introduce new scenes to try and get convey something and, and seeing the kind of transformation of that and being involved in that must be quite exciting. It's been a lot of fun. I, I've seen two film adaptations of Wool. And with the film, we just had to take out so much of the story and just leave the skeleton behind. And with the TV show, we're actually showing stuff that's alluded to in the book that you don't get to see. And some of it's huge fan service. So um, that's been a thrill for me to actually expand the story and and show um, even hardcore fans. They're not just going to like tune in and see what they're familiar with. They're going to get to see stuff that they had to kind of imagine happen, but now they're going to see it unfold and that's uh that's a that's super exciting awesome and would you you, you said you were in the writer's room would you ever get involved in actually writing the the scripts for the show uh i'd like to i might uh if we get a second season see if i can um uh push my way into uh doing that i was was offered that this time but i didn't believe in my uh, abilities enough to take that on i didn't want to sabotage because i at the time we write scripts, we didn't have a green light. So mm-hmm. if I'd written a bad script, maybe it doesn't get made. And I would have hated um, if the reason, you know, the show didn't go forward was because of uh, a mistake that I made. But, uh, you know, if we've got a season in the can and we get a second season, uh, now I know that if I do something bad, they'll just be like, okay, we'll rewrite it and <laughs> we'll take your name off of it. So uh, I have a little more confidence going in knowing that I have like a, like a safety net. So when's that due to air? I haven't heard an air date, but just knowing how long these things take, I think mm. we're at least a year away. Yeah. Um, what's crazy is like when I see a, a new show coming out, I'm like, oh my God, they've worked on they've been working on that for two years and I didn't know about it. Like yeah. it's such a long process. You only hear about it when it's ready to come out. Yeah, totally. Awesome. So so what what's next then? I mean, you, have you got any other books in the pipeline that you're working on? Are you working on anything different you can talk about? Yeah, I I just turned in the final edits for uh, the sequel to Sand, which people have been asking for for a long time. So that's coming Thanks. out early next year. Uh, 
And I've got a children's picture book that's super exciting that uh, I can't wait to tell people about. Uh, I think it's one of the most uh, creative and cool things I've ever worked on. So I'm really, really thrilled to get that out there. Cool. Um, I wrote a memoir this summer about my sailing adventures that I'm going to turn into a paper book. Right now, it's just a Kindle Vela thing. Um, so I'm working on that right now. And I'm working on the next uh, book in the sand series, uh, the wool series. So awesome. uh, I'm... I always kind of dreamed about like a, a trilogy of trilogies, but I didn't know if I'd ever uh, get around to them, but uh, I've had this story in my mind for a long time. So I'm actually going to uh, write the second trilogy of that series. And, and hopefully that'll start coming out while the TV show is running. Brilliant. Brilliant. Awesome. I have to ask that I did read that somewhere that you sold your house and you lived in a boat, you see on the world as, as you write. Is that, I mean, that sounded like the most amazing life. I it was, imagine. yeah, it's been crazy. I So that was another career I had. I spent, you know, a good uh, 15 years of my life living on the water. Um, then for five years uh, before the pandemic, I was sailing around the world on a catamaran that I built in uh, Africa. But um, mostly I got off the boat for the TV shows just to have internet access and be able to try to make this stuff happen. Cause you don't really get, that's not a, a journey you can to choose when it happens. Like Hollywood has their final say in that. So um, I'm trying to enjoy that while I can, and I can get back on the boat once uh this winds down or sustains itself. Either way, I'll, I'll get back on the boat soon. Hey, cool. What is the last book that you read? Oh, I, the last book I read was one of the best books I've read uh, in my life. It's called uh, When We Cease to Understand the World. And I've been encouraging everyone to read that. Um, and also just read uh, Amor Towles's, uh The Lincoln Highway, which I put in my top five of American uh, novels of all time. Wow. Like it's blew me away. Uh, so uh, The Lincoln Highway and When We Cease to Understand the World are both books that I highly recommend. Great. Nice. Awesome. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? Uh, the In the theater, Dune, which uh, I saw twice, blew me away. Um, also love the most recent Bond movie, but I'm a film junkie. I'll just go see everything that's out. I'm really <laughs> I'm excited that the cinema is coming back yep. here in New York, so we can just go to movies over and over again. Uh, and what was the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Uh, we I have never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm until the oh, pandemic, nice. and my girlfriend like <laughs> turned me on to it, and so we've been just like binging it all, and we're watching the uh, some of the new seasons that have just. Uh, come out recently and this is such a reliably uh hilarious um show um the best thing i've seen recently is probably uh uh warrior which is kind of an obscure tv show but it got moved from cinemax to hbo max and had so many viewers that they re uh renewed it for a third season even though it had been canceled which is super unusual Mm -hmm. very hard to get like all the the all the uh original actors back and rebuild the sets and everything but if you haven't oh. seen warrior yet highly, i've heard of it i've never seen it before yeah that's it's one of the best things on tv oh fantastic Excellent. Uh, and the very very last thing we do is a super quick fire either or and i always say there's no right answers apart from one so we'll start off with uh, self-pub or traditional pub Oh, self-pub. That's <laughs> that hard one, though. Yeah. No, it's yeah. actually hard for me. I, I do a lot of deals with publishers now. I love it. But uh, Night Owl or Early Bird? Oh, Early Bird. Uh, TV or cinema? 
Ah, Silva. Uh, fancy restaurant or takeaway? Oh, takeaway. <laughs> and last one, uh, real book or ebook? Uh, real book. Oh, I have to say, I was, I mean, I was banking on the ebook answer for that one. That's, that was, that caught me on off guard there. Yeah, I, I love them for the convenience and I own way more ebooks than print books. But if I, uh, if you're going to tell me a book is great and only give me one way to read it, I'm probably going to take the print book. And I don't know. It's, uh, it's my, not the I'm smell st- or something, is it? I'm something still surrounded like- by them. I think it's just when I, when I grew up, I have, it's, we we uh we imprint on things, you know, and I have so many positive memories and so much of that was from holding a book. So I've just imprinted on that form factor. But I've learned not to I think one of the best things you can do in any career, any profession is not let your customer biases influence your business decisions. Um, you are not the customer. So don't close off opportunities because you think that other people are are not different than you. Trust me, they are. Yeah. And, uh, one thing that Tarek said before, which I think is a good idea, is that, that I'm surprised that more people don't sell like, a, mm. you know, if you buy the hardcover or something, that you get the ebook with it or something like that. That would be the the best of both worlds. There. Yeah, I, I've I've been advocating for that for a long time. Even when I, before I was writing, was a bookseller. But I, you know, Amazon does make it possible for when people buy your paperback to get the ebook for free. Or for reduced price, and I yeah. always opt into that program. I think it's really smart. I definitely bought the because I know they also sell the audiobook for like far less. If you buy the Kindle version, you get the audiobook for like two, three quid, or whatever. And I've done that quite a few days. If it's a massive book, I'll do that, and then you can listen to both, and it syncs up. And it's a really, I guess, it's a bit of an unusual way to read a book, or whatever. But it's quite a nice way just to you're always getting it in some form, whether you're listening to it, or reading it as you work your way through it. And so stuff like that, I think there's definitely room for new new stuff to happen. Exactly. So I have a question. I have an either or question for you guys. Okay. Either or questions or nuance. <laughs> <laughs> nuance, which yeah, is something nuance. that has been lost in the world. But uh, it sense. has to be nuance. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, I can see that because like we spent an hour with uh, detailed nuance answers and only like a minute on either or. But I do <laughs> yeah. love the either. You know, it forces you to make a choice. But I think we all agree that this the world's way too uh, messy. For, oh, yeah, uh, to yeah. send people down one path or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think exactly. so. But despite what Twitter might have you have you believe it's uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I bet you had uh, when when we wrote down the guests we were having this season, time <laughs> and you were trying to tally up the ebook real book predictions. You would have had Hugh in the ebook camp. Sure. I thought I thought that I was laughing all the way to the bank with Hugh. Hugh, you guys didn't know this, but I had a bottle of champagne. I had the cork, three quarters of the way out of the bottle, and then he said real book, and I, I mean. What an absolute disaster! Uh, but but he had his reasons, and he does still like the ebooks, of course, as well. Yeah, as yeah, yeah. So. I mean, I'll be honest. If, if even if anyone says, everyone always says, "Oh, but I like I like ebooks," and that, I count that as a win for me. So. <laughs> well, you have. I, to. I think we're neck and neck, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I I really enjoyed that chat with you, uh, and I hope yeah, it was I great. hope you did when you were listening to it. Um, you know, lots of interesting stuff, as we mentioned at the start. Uh, what I thought was also interesting was. You know, Amazon nowadays get painted as the big bad wolf of the publishing mm-hmm. industry, and I completely understand why in a lot of cases. But oh yeah, yeah. Um, as you said, there, 
you know, it's not all negative. You know, books yeah. are are they do they have done a lot of good for people in books as well as harm as well. Yeah, it's that it's a it's a total kind of double edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. You have a massive kind of corporation that's I can totally see the point of view of pushing smaller booksellers, you yeah. know, to the sidelines, etc. And then the flip side is that they're also giving making it easier than, any, than ever before to be a writer or to be a reader. You know, mm-hmm. you can buy books for cheap. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I suppose is a different argument. But you're, they're, in terms of getting content out there to people to read, yeah, they, they do seem to be more kind of focused on that than other people. And and I suppose the other, to be devil's advocate, you've also got big massive corporate, yeah, big massive kind of, kind of publishers who are owned by yeah, they all Murdoch, etc. Exactly. Like you know, you, you climb the tree high enough that it's not like there's rays of sunshine. No, so no. It's, it's a it's it's a difficult. No, that, that, that's you know that's the all trouble. The politics yeah. of it. I mean, yeah, ultimately, I mean, I, I, interesting as well what you're saying there about you know giving access to writers and stuff, which is absolutely true. But what was interesting was when he was talking about, you know. It, the same number of books are probably being written now as there were before self-publishing. Yeah, it's that, just that, I that very interesting. you're seeing more of them now, I suppose, yeah, because people yeah. are able to get them out now. And again, there's an argument, is that good, is that bad? You know, yeah, that is yeah. that is up for debate. But I think if you've, if you have written a book, it's a hard thing to do. As, as you said, to, to finish a book, no matter what it is or, or you know, um, what other people think of it, it's still an achievement. So, yeah, having that ability to get it out there in front of totally. people is and, is very important. I think absolutely, and and we're already seeing different ways that people consume books, whether it's a physical book or it's an ebook or it's an audio book or it's a dark mags radio drama. Mm. You know, there's so many different ways that a book can be, or 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 I guess a pile of words can be transformed into into the format that you consume it yeah. that it's it's you know and there'll always be a special place for physical books i think because that's kind of the it's the original it's the yeah. classic etc but i think people are often quite quick to look down on ebooks or audiobooks as not proper they don't count as reading or whatever and that's i think we are starting to change now and see and people people will do consume books in many many different ways and that is a good thing ultimately i think no no i i agree so it's yeah. It, I hope I hope you enjoyed that that chat as much, as much as we did because it, it really also, was. Also, he's sailing around the world. Well, he has, living in a boat. Yeah, living That's in amazing. a boat for for years. Brilliant. Which, yeah, yeah. I think he's got the self pub book, but as he said, he's he's going to release it as a as a trad pub book about his That's adventures. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which yeah, incredible. And but I suppose I mean, if you turn down a million dollars for your book. Uh, you're in a position where you can do that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like we've tried to vote before in the past, you know, who've maybe changed agents, etc. And it's knowing when to say no to something. And it's a scary choice, etc. But as long as you're doing it for the right reasons and you're sensible and it, sometimes you do need to make these hard choices and say no to a million quid because I'd rather have a less money but more control and what's more important long term and it's all these difficult things which people have to grapple with sometimes and, yeah and yeah. and as as he was saying you know i think you have to you do have to have that single-mindedness that that you has mm-hmm. if you want to be like want to have a chance of being really successful at self-publishing you need to get all over marketing all over design of book covers uh, print yeah, layout totally. all of that 
Uh, totally. I, I think yeah. he's right when he says that not many people will be as determined to, you know, they, they want oh, to no, do the writing absolutely. side of it, but they won't want to do everything else, which is where having a traditional publisher is helpful because you don't yeah, need do to worry about lifting. that side Yeah, of exactly, that. yeah. So yeah. Um, it's definitely, you know, whatever suits you best. But it, yeah, it, it, it was um, enlightening to hear him to hear him talk yeah no really that. really fascinating chat really really enjoyed that thank you very much for coming on the show Hugh yeah no and obviously you can grab all of his books uh, at mm. your local bookshop or Amazon whatever you prefer <laughs> other bookshops are available um, now uh, of course next week next is uh, next Friday is Christmas Eve which means that we are taking a I was going to say well-earned. Well-deserved break. <laughs> well, we're taking a break anyway. Uh, but only for a week before we... Do, we, will, we are coming back for one more episode of this season on the 31st of uh, December uh, with Chris Hammer. The, yes, it's a really interesting chat yeah, with him. A really fun Former chat. journalist his, turned yeah, yeah. best-selling author from Australia. Um, um, we talk about, you know, why he made that transition and also... It's really interesting hearing about the Australian publishing scene and how, although we we may know some Australian authors, it sounds like it's a much, uh, until recently, it seemed like it was a much more insular uh, industry yeah, in Australia. Yeah. And now it's more international, I think. Yeah. It's 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 a really fun chat. He's, his, his books are Scrubland, which is kind of, you mm. know, kind of big breakout novel for him. And as late as his Opal, Opal Country, unless you're in the US, in which it's called something else, I can't remember. The Treasure moment. and Dirt, is it? Or am I making I think that it might up? Be, let's say Treasure and Dirt. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, Chris, if, if that's not. If that's not <laughs> you'll find out the real title yeah, next You'll find message. out on the 31st of December. Uh, plenty of time, in plenty of time to buy it in any of <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, thanks very much uh, for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do take time to give us a rating and leave a review on your favourite podcast app because that really helps us to continue to get great guests on the podcast. And of course, if you have any questions or comments, you can always get in touch by dropping us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear, or you can send us an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, have a great week, have a great Christmas, and we'll be back on the 31st and we hope you'll join us. See you later. <laughs>